I actually have things I want to conserve. Like health care for my neighbors, the environment, and the basic human rights of women. Many people ask me, Republican and Democrat, why in the world Josh McCall, a teacher, would you step out in the third most Republican district in the entire country and run as a Democrat? I'll tell you why. First and foremost, I believe that it's not the amount of money in your bank accounts, the color of your skin, your sexual preference, your gender that makes you equal. I believe that what makes us human makes us equal. And that even though we are a nation of equals, we are not yet a nation of equality. We are not yet a nation of equality when a black person does not have the same safety in public that I have. of equality when in the midst of the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, people are dying because they're poor and they're going poor because they're dying. I pledge to end that with Medicare for all. As I'm canvassing around the 9th District, I hear some beautiful sounds. One of my favorite people, when my wife and I went to their door, the husband comes to the door, answers, I say, I'm running as a Democrat in your area, how can I earn your vote? He says, honey, come look, it's a Democrat. <laughs> and there for a moment, I thought about disappearing and really feeling what it's like to be Sasquatch. But I stayed there. And I'll tell you why else I'm running. I went to another door in Cornelia just this past week. And a woman had been evicted from her home. A woman who was planning on sleeping on the front porch of her apartment. Because in our nation, compassion pinches pennies. But punishment and violence carries a blank check. It's time to end that. No person should be out in the streets in this country. between communities, between people of different genders, between people of different sexual orientation and immigration status, because I believe that we are fundamentally equal. And I also am running to empty those cages of kids and to fill them with the monsters who put them there. Welcome to another episode of Blue Topsy. The voice you just heard was Josh McCall. Amazing guy we have in the studio today. I can't wait to have this conversation, Eric. Yeah, Josh is running in the 9th Congressional District. 
What is if I believe is the third most conservative district in the entire country? We gotta get Doug Collins out, man. You think he'll come and talk to us? I don't want to talk to Doug Collins. No, it's not right. no, I, I like I like Josh. Remember, I liked Mike back when we were growing up. That's right. I like Josh. I like yeah. Josh. Well, look, everybody, we've been having a lot of fun with Blue Topsy. Uh, started off with uh, our good friend Jason Carter, Sarah Miko. We got to talk about voting a little bit, right? Yes, Elections matter. Yep. And uh, as we continue on this journey to educate and inform and dissect the Democratic Party of Georgia, uh, I am so excited today for our good friend Josh McCall. And uh, Eric, why don't you go ahead and introduce our friend? All right, so Josh, as I just said, Josh is running in the 9th Congressional District. He's running for U.S. Congress, House of Representatives. Um, his district is huge. If I'm correct, 20 counties? 20 counties. That's a lot of counties. And where we are, we're recording in Forsyth County. He gets kind of a top sliver of the county, so he's partially in Forsyth. So if you live in Forsyth County, that means, guess what? You've got work to do to support great people like Steve Smith, Anita Tucker, add Josh McCall to that list. That's right. And uh, McCallforall.com is where you can uh, find out about Josh on the Internet. But I'm sure he'll tell us more about that. Well, let's bit. welcome Josh McCall to our show, everybody. Josh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Daniel. Thanks, Eric. Thank you guys for having me here today. Now, I have to confess... When I first met Josh, when we would do speeches, Josh would always say, gosh, I don't want to go after that guy. <laughs> but now that I travel over the, all over the state and I get to speak with Josh, I look at my wife or I look around me to whoever's, whoever I'm with and I say, man, I don't want to speak after Josh. Man, your momentum <laughs> has gotten so amazing. I mean, like literally we're at a point where the thing that excites me most about your campaign is it's almost like an avalanche. Every time I see you speak, you're getting better. Every audience is more excited. As a matter of fact, folks, just listen to that amazing speech you gave during the convention. Walk us through what you were thinking when you were in front of folks from all over the state of Georgia, many of whom may not ever have a chance to vote for you, but by but were inspired um, by, by hearing about you. And let's be honest, man, like everybody keeps saying this is the year of the woman. Um, but between Charlie Bailey and, right. and Josh McCall and Otha, I mean, we got some good guys on the ballot. So mm -hmm. walk us through what you were thinking when you gave that speech at the convention. I actually didn't know for sure what I was going to say up until about maybe five minutes before the speech started. Not wow. that I haven't prepared. I've written a lot of speeches and I've tried to distill everything that I've, that I've been speaking about. But what I really, you know, that was a nice setting. It was a nice arena. We were in this convention complex. I'm from Martin. We didn't get out very much when I was young. We didn't Tell us get where out. Martin is. Martin is between Tacoa and Livonia. It's in the 9th District. Okay. It's, uh, I was on the Franklin County side. We didn't get out too much, and so I was in a really nice place. But I was thinking, you know, I'm down here with all these talented, brilliant people, um, many of them pretty well off, right, and this beautiful convention center. And I thought, none of this glitz and glamour is worth anything unless we help those people that aren't in the spotlight because there are people in the shadows in our own state, in Atlanta, just right down the road who are homeless. Uh, we have homeless veterans in this state. We have people struggling paycheck to paycheck. We have people in jail who shouldn't be in jail for nonviolent offenses. Um, we have kids falling through the cracks in our educational system and family services. And, and I was thinking before that speech, I thought if I could summon up the voice of the suffering people in this state, and in this nation, what would they say if they had this platform? And so what I tried to do was try not to think too much about all the people looking at me. And I tried to think about the suffering in this country. 
and I tried to put all of that suffering into words. One thing you said is that um, we're a nation of equals, not a nation of equality, or something along that line. You mm-hmm. well, let mm-hmm. me let me rephrase that. You mentioned the fact that while we promote and and like to think of us as equal, it's not equal for everyone. Mm-hmm. And you know, later on in this conversation, I want to speak to you more about, you know, issues such as race and justice and poverty, mm-hmm. because one thing that I have come to learn is that these conversations that have been difficult in the past are becoming much easier to have because of people like you. So I want to start off by thanking you, mm-hmm. because as a black male uh, in this country, it's easy for me to have a grievance or to speak to my child or to speak to my children. Um, but when it comes from a white male, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I want to be very frank and just dive into the pool head first today. Mm-hmm. You have said some things about poverty. You said some things about race. You've said some things about the treatment of immigrant children. And the thing that I love about you is that you are bold and you're courageous and we wouldn't even have you on the show if we didn't think that you would represent us well uh, if you were to make it to Congress or when you make it to Congress. So I want to thank you so much, man. Uh, Eric, what do we have for our, our well, good friend today? I want to follow up quickly on the convention speech because I don't even think the audio captures it. So being on the floor, that crowd became so animated. They were so excited. It's like a rock concert. It was, man. yes. I mean, Josh was a rock star. And then all of a sudden, like, I heard people behind me, who's this Josh McCall, man? This guy, he's good. You know, yeah. When I heard... <laughs> In the crowd, McCall for all, McCall for all. I was like, all right, Josh is official. If you can get people to do a chant for you in Atlanta, in a convention, with folks all over the state that have never interacted with you, you're doing something right, brother. (laughs) That was within three minutes, too, so that's pretty darn good. So how's your wife, man? How's your family? My family's good. I actually work in the same literally office space as my wife now. How is that? It's it's actually a lot of fun. We get along really well. We're best friends. We joke a lot. Um, she's, you know, I, I help support her through law school. Yeah. And she's now having to help me support, help support me through this. She's the breadwinner. So um, here's a challenge I have for you. Yeah. After you get elected, I need you to write a book for married families on how to work together in <laughs> hey. a more efficient way. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's such a, it's, you know, it's a struggle for us just because we're tired and it's a, mm-hmm. It's a struggle to manage our time and our resources, but because we had a good foundation before, you know, we were ready for challenges, um, ready for all the sort of loneliness and antagonism and tension that comes with running for office. It takes a lot out of you, man. It takes a commitment from both sides. Tell me, um, there's a story you, you have shared on more than one occasion uh, about the, you know, no shame in good, hard, honest work. And you mm-hmm. talked about how... Uh, your wife had said, you know, because I think you're a professor or a teacher. Mm-hmm, Is that mm-hmm. correct? That's right. I've, I've worked in the high schools, and I've also taught at uh, UNG. I was a teaching assistant at UGA, yeah. but I taught as an instructor at UNG before. Tell us that story. So my wife was going through law school. We'd, we're, we still, frankly, right now, haven't recovered from the Great Recession. We're, we're deeply in debt, and we don't live a big, big life at all. I mean, we have a modest house, um, you know, modest cars, everything else. But um, when the recession happened, my wife was pregnant. And she could not get a job. Of course, nobody would say, we're not hiring you because you're pregnant. They would just, she would come in and she was very obviously pregnant and they wouldn't, wouldn't hire her. And so we were, we had no money. I mean, we were struggling. My family had to pitch in. We had to rent our house and move in with her father who lived in Gainesville. And so we were on the brink of a lot, like a lot of people losing everything. And 
um, you know, she decided to go back to law school because, you know, she couldn't find a job. We were going to be low on money anyway, but at least she could be building us a path out of, of this hole that we were in. And while, while she was in law school and right after, we realized that this money, we needed more money. And so I was working, I worked retail uh, during Christmas. At one point, I was working three jobs during the recession. I worked at Gainesville High School, full-time teacher. I worked as, um, at UNG as a part-time instructor. And then I was working on the nights I wasn't there. And the day, weekend days, I was working at Kohl's down in Flowery Branch. So all the, all three jobs, and especially during Christmas, because I wanted to get some Christmas for my kids. So, but then I, I started delivering pizzas uh, later on uh, the year after my wife got out of law school because that when when the recession happened, a lot of other people had the same idea. They said we're going to go back to law school right now, yeah. and of course, supply and demand. A lot of lawyers on the market, and not enough demand to keep up with them. And so my wife's salary wasn't as much as we thought it was. So when she first got out. I was delivering pizzas yeah. down in Buford. It was at the Buford Papa John's, Mall of Georgia Papa John's. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was just driving around and my wife said, uh, aren't you afraid that some of your students will see you? Or maybe what if your students order a pizza while they're down there and they see you delivering the pizza to the door? And I said, you know, you know, my parents come from a working class background. My dad's a machinist, but my worked at a textile factory. Her parents are Vietnamese refugees. And I said, you know, we're working hard just like our parents did. There's nothing wrong with hard work, especially if it's there, it's for somebody else, if I'm doing this for, to help, you know, my wife fulfill her dreams of being a lawyer. Man, I love it. You know, there's an article, uh, uh, well, not a, a feature story in this month's edition of Time Magazine that talks about being a teacher in America. Mm -hmm. And I think the story you just shared about having to work uh, is a direct reflection on the type of integrity and leadership we need because if we're honest with ourselves, the folks that are working the hardest are the folks that are lifting up our economies, they're working to support their families. And I am, I'm, I'm appreciative, man, that uh, you're setting a precedent. And I hope that more teachers and more regular folks will be inspired by what you're doing and, uh, and, and, and run for office. It's like your story, how many teachers do you hear that all the time? The teacher who works full time and then they have multiple jobs because it's just not sufficient. You know, we can build military equipment that's not needed. Congress lines up, hey, let's build this fighter jet that the military doesn't even want. And then we're in a situation where teachers aren't even properly compensated. So it seems to be mixed priorities in incorrect order priorities. You're right. I mean, if you look at your next door neighbor and you see your next door neighbor get mugged, you know, you can call 911. There's a, a government paid person sitting there waiting to take your call. They will send out a government paid union member police officer out to that property. Uh, they, if they find that burglar, they'll arrest them, put them in a government funded shelter cage with government funded guards and give them a government funded lawyer. I mean, it, when it comes to punishment, we have a lot of money That's in this right. country. Um, but then when it comes to compassion, actually investing in people's lives and building people instead of cages or building, building educational futures instead of bombs, you know, we, it seems like we always have to count every penny. And that's right. one of my campaign slogans is, you know, in, in America today, compassion pinches pennies, but violence carries a blank check. Wow. And we're going to ch we're gonna have to change that because we can see the results right now. Communities are falling apart because of poverty, because of the war on drugs, because of the war on terror. Uh, you know, there are veterans who have, you know, living in the shadows uh, of homelessness, living in the shadows of not being treated. Uh, they can't get help at the VA because it's flooded. Right. There's not enough resources. Um, and, and so, you know, our 
our politicians like to give this vision of America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. And that's true. Um, but the problem is that the people who are the bravest among us, the people who are really facing our social problems, they are being left in the shadows. And the politicians are hobnobbing and eating steak with their donors. And so we're getting a really false picture of how well our country is doing uh, with this so-called economic boom that we're going through. Um, but like I, you know, I focus in my, I get this from the Sermon on the Mount, actually, uh, spiritual principle is that if you want to know the truth about any society, listen to those who suffer. That's right. Don't ever listen to the people who are comfortable because they're always going to be fine. Um, but li if you listen to those who suffer, back in the 1800s, I can promise you nobody understood slavery better than the slaves. Yeah. I can promise you nobody understands right now what it's like to be a veteran than the veterans who are committing suicide, yeah. the veterans who are a day. waiting in line um, to get the VA. Uh, nobody understands the healthcare system like the people who can't, ha who actually can't go and get their diabetes treated. Um, we have to start listening to the voices of the suffering and stop listening to people polished with nice three-piece suits we're paying for um, if we want to really know the truth about our country. So I know one of your main issues is healthcare, mm -hmm. and your platform is Medicare for All. So I wanted to, I, I have a construct here, okay? Yeah. And I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible because, as you know, healthcare is so complicated. Mm -hmm. So what do you propose, what, what do you envision as a healthcare system? So I like to think of it this way, as an American health insurance plan. Okay. You know, the, ever, nobody cares about necessarily what form this health care reform is going to take. Right. People want to be able to go see the doctor, and they want to be able to pay for it if they can. And they also want us to make sure that people who can't pay for it can still go see the doctor. This is the overwhelming majority of Americans. We're, we're at 52% now of Republicans who are in favor of Medicare for all. And of course, it's overwhelmingly on the Democratic side that people want to see Medicare for all. Um, so if you look at Bernie Sanders' plan, that is actually the plan that I propose, that I support. Uh, the, the Medicare for all um, that Bernie Sanders has designed, studied, uh, they've got it up on his website and everything else. Workers would be paying uh, somewhere between two and 3% uh, as a tax, which is a lot less than I pay right now right. for health insurance. Uh, employers would pay between 7 and 8% on, of their tax on their side, which is, by the way, a lot cheaper than what employers are paying right now. So it's saving them both because what you're doing is you're getting rid of the middleman. There's a the private insurance uh, business, the system. It is there, you know, like a bank. It helps the bank to lend out money to people and then to get interest back. As long as they're working, providing money and loans, it helps the bank. But the problem with private insurance is their bottom line is not reimbursing you for being sick and for going to the doctor. They hurt. The, the more that they actually do their job, the less money they make. So that's the system we've got to change. We've got to have a, a system where the American payer can, go, can put money straight into uh, a national health insurance program so that New York, those big earners up there, they'll be paying into the same pool as Georgia and we'll all be drawing from the same pool. Sure. And it, there's a lot of money out there waiting to be to be invested in everybody else instead of these private uh, insurance CEOs. What so. do you think about livable wages and income inequality? Because when you think of health care and folks uh, struggle, you know, we're seeing people that unfortunately being diagnosed of uh, illnesses such as cancer, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and we're seeing people deplete their entire life savings. So when it comes to trying to fix the issue, when you look at 
areas in rural Georgia and, and in other rural parts of the country. What do you think about livable wages and how do we address the income inequality issue? Because I believe it ties right into access to health care. I think it ties right into, you know, if, if, if you are able to make more, like when I was Bernie Sanders' political uh, director in Georgia, he had this saying that if you work, uh, no one that works a 40-hour work week should be living in poverty. So how do we, how do we have both conversations. My father was a United States Army Ranger. He used to always tell me, you can chew bubblegum and march at the same time. Right. People think we either got to pick health care or income <laughs> equality or affordable housing. How do, how do we attack these multiple issues that are tying into each other? Well, one thing that we've really got to do as Democrats is actually be able to tell a better story. Um, Republicans tell a great story. If you're a Republican right now, you can imagine yourself fighting against open borders and Democrats who want to take your paycheck you know, they've got this great narrative out there they're telling. And of course, it's very deceptive. If they, if they can tell a compelling story and lie, we can tell a compelling story about the truth. There you right? go. I love and it. And the, the truth is that right now, um, people are being at, actually, people have to go in. Most of the people in this country have to go in and work for a living. Most of us have to wake up in the morning, and if we don't produce, we get fired. I mean, not like Congress, right, where you get a check no matter what. You don't even have to go, but you get a check. Um, but most Americans aren't like that. They have to show up and work, and they're being asked of their time, their daily life, uh, usually eight, ten hours. And yet, in return for that deal, they're getting poverty. And, you know, in the 50s and 60s, we had something that they still call the economic miracle. It's never happened before. Usually, capitalism kind of falls to the vultures. The strong overcome the weak. Uh, they have the money. They can hire you, or they, they don't have to. And they have all the power in that situation. And we're, we have become that way again. 50s and 60s, it was a capitalist system based on labor. People went to work. They produced something. We were a manufacturing and a consuming country. But starting in the 70s, we started losing that manufacturing base. Uh, African Americans in the city used to be something like upper 70% used to work in, uh, in urban manufacturing. Um, and then in the early 80s, mid-80s, when you saw the crack epidemic pass through America, it was right after that infrastructure fell apart. Yeah. So this living wage is not charity. This is not something that uh, people, you know, have fuzzy feelings about. It's a struggle to get a living wage. We, in this country, we've had bloody Haymarket Square incidents. We had people had to bleed to get to the 50s and 60s. It didn't just come out of nowhere. Yeah. There were workers who had to fight for the right to live on their wages. So, you know, we've, I, I do agree that, you know, the living wage is tied right into healthcare because right now I know people, uh, Dawn Johnson's husband, for instance, she's running for office. Her husband still has to work, even though he's seriously ill. And there are people all across this country having to go into work with cancer. Mm -hmm. They're having to deal out some, possibly some of these people at least are having to work what may be their last days and they can't spend that time with their family or their children, their last days on earth because they would lose everything they have and they and their children would lose everything from their inheritance. Um, it, it, I think that the wage, um, um, the wage situation in this country is tied directly into the vulture capitalism we see in the healthcare industry. There are people like Walmart, uh, at least corporations like Walmart, who have so much wealth that they and their great-grandchildren will never have to go to work a day in their lives. I wish people like Betsy DeVos would, would realize that. She actually doesn't yeah. have to go to work. Good luck with um, that one. But, <laughs> but just like that vulture capitalism where people are exploiting the weak, we can have a better capitalist system where, yes, 
the corporations do make money off of their product, but the people who produce that product and ship it and make it and buy it have a decent life. We don't have to have that false choice between, you know, vulture capitalism and socialism. We can have a better form of capitalism. I like to call it democratic capitalism. So I got to drop an F-bomb, man. Okay. <laughs> you ready for it? Fearless. That's, yes. that's my that's my, that's my F-bomb for you. See, I, I made you nice. nervous. Eric, you, you, you gave me this look like you didn't know what was going to happen. Because, 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 all right, so we're totally unfiltered, right? Yeah. And so somehow I've managed to not say anything vulgar for the first now four episodes, which is... Well, my kids are surprised. They're like, Dad, you haven't said anything yet? I'm like, it's coming, don't worry. Something's going to get me going eventually. Um... Let, let me go back to healthcare for a second. So my dad was a healthcare executive for many, many decades. And way back when Hillary was doing the healthcare uh, plan, when she was exploring everything, when Bill Clinton was president, the company that he worked for, they had done a lot of studies and stuff. And what did they find? They found that the only way that you could bend the cost curve in the system would be to have a single payer type system. And they basically said, you know what? The way, the way it would work is the insurance companies would still exist, but instead of being an insurer, they would essentially morph into a claims processor. That would be really the only way. So the insurance companies, it's akin to tobacco, it's akin to big oil. They all know this stuff, they know the truth, and then for some reason, our counterparts on the other side, they know this as well, and they just feed, as you said, like these these narratives that somehow they're just so great at messaging. Mm -hmm. They are, and and when, it, when it's somebody like the Koch brothers or these private, health insurance companies, uh, these corporations, they have time. They have time and they have resources and they have an army of people. They organize based on, you know, basically we can pay you a lot of money if you can come up with a study and if you can uh, write um, some political ads against single payer systems. Um, but, you know, I think that the people, people are less convinced by this stuff than we think. Um, one of the problems on our side is, you know, if you go look at right now the the uh, better deal. Now, I, first of all, I agree with everything on the better deal. If you go to look at the Democrats' plan, but the way that they're messaging it is just so much. What, what's so wrong with the Democrats? There's still nothing there in the better deal that people can take to the water cooler with them every day. Um, they're still not demanding, by the way, Medicare for all as a right. Every one of the Democrats in the Senate and the House have health care just as good as Doug Collins. Right. And they, of course, they like it for themselves, but they don't want it for everybody else. They don't demand it for everybody else. And that's partly because some of the Democrats take money from the same people the Republicans take right. money from in order to argue against single payer. You know, we almost didn't have this situation. Back when Barack Obama had won, one of the options on the table was at the very least a public option. That was exactly. one of the things on the table. And Lieberman, uh, who was sort of caucus with the Democrats sometimes and sometimes not, he was one of the he was the vote that was going to pass Obamacare. And he refuted that one person. Now this one person though had had hundreds of thousands of dollars from the private health insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies to make sure that that one person could be bought. Well, he was the senator where I grew up and. Mm -hmm. What state was at the time the number one insurers, insurance state? Connecticut. So that answers uh, as to why Joe Lieberman went that way. And, and yeah. another thing, I mean, you know, I, I'm curious to know, you know, I, I don't want to skim over it, but, you know, you kind of called the Democrats out, you mm -hmm. know, and, right. you know, Blue Topsy is literally 
um, you know, was birthed out this idea of if we were to give the Democratic Party an autopsy, what would that look like? How do we solve it? How do we examine? How do we dissect? How do we bring back to life? How do we motivate? So can, talk to me more about that because, you know, I'm a Democrat. You're a Democrat. I mean, but there's been this space where folks have felt that they either couldn't be critical or, you know, if I'm running for office, I've, I've, I've got to be, you know, uh, walk toe-in-toe with this certain platform. You know, when I when I became Bernie's uh, political director in Georgia, I took I caught a lot of hell for that. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of good folks that I know and that I respect uh, were pretty upset at me, you know, and I had to let people know whether it was, you know, single pay or it was income inequality or it was mass incarceration. These were issues that I felt that this gentleman was doing a better job of highlighting. And even when you look at, you know, uh, free college, you know, I said, look, if we adjust the tax code, you know, there are certain things we could have done to make it a reality. Talk to me more about the current state as a candidate. You know, what is the current state of, of the party? Because, you know, in Georgia, at least, the saying has always been it's Atlanta and the rest of Georgia, right? Mm-hmm. So when you look at rural Georgia, when you look at North Georgia, I mean, what is, what is the climate in your perspective? I think it's tough. Partially, you know, one of the, to be quite frank, one of the things that makes it harder for me to run in my district is being a Democrat. Partly because um, when you're not present somewhere, like the, like the National Democratic Party, and sometimes, sometimes it's getting better, but sometimes in the past the state party, when, they're, when you're not present, the other person gets to tell the story, and you don't even get to stand up for yourself. That's right. And what the Democratic Party has done, um, some of it I think is strategy, and they kind of were in, in sort of the cornered by this. Um, they have both geographically and ideologically allowed that red sea to spread and they know the game, just as like the, just like the Republicans do. They know that our that land in America votes, and I know it's not fair, but they know the the rules of the game too. And what they've done is they've poured their money and resources into uh, swing districts, That's right. and they've largely abandoned ten point swing dist- ten point districts, you know, the twelve point districts. Campaign. Or exactly, she didn't go into Wisconsin, yeah. um, and somebody told her, "Don't go to Wisconsin." So ideologically, it's not; ju- it's geographically, it's the same same kind of battle. Where they've also hedged themselves in by saying, "We can't be too bold. Right. We we don't want to be called the S word." And one of the great things that What's I the S word for those the S word is socialist. Yeah, <laughs> and it's so beautiful because I know now that we must be doing our job because all the things that we're proposing now is we're being called socialists finally That's again. Right. Yeah. And now I don't actually think that single payer healthcare is socialist. It's a public service. It's no more socialist than the fire department. Um, Republicans see socialism anywhere where they see people working together to try to make a better society. They think socialism, they see red. Yeah. But if you think that those firemen who show up at my house, that we all pay, they work, they have a pension. If you think that they're socialist, You've got a red scare problem. It's a psychological problem. It's not me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that if we're not being accused of being socialists, we're not doing our job as Democrats. That's good. Um, I, I think that, you know, and for those people who call themselves democratic socialists, I'm fine working with them. But I think what we really just need is a new deal for the 21st century. That's right. And that's New Deal politics is really what these new Democrats like uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, they're really just proposing a new deal to fit 21st century conditions. That's right. Yeah, that's good. You know, it's funny you said that, and that, that's what I was, I, there was a question I had to present, and it was, mm-hmm. well, Medicare and Social Security, mm-hmm. at face value, what is that? That's socialism. And guess what they called us? Every The Democrats built those things, and those things are right now non-negotiables yep. if you want to get elected. George Bush got tanked when he tried to mess with Social Security. 
Um, he lost a lot of seats, lost control of Congress mm -hmm. because of that. Every time they try to touch it, they lose big. And even Donald Trump knew to lie about it, right? He, even he knew enough that I'm going to say I'm not going to cut any of these programs. So we made, the Democrats made, by being bold, they made the, the non-negotiables, the political reality of the future. When Eisenhower left and Truman left, Eisenhower, I mean, excuse me, when Roosevelt and Truman were finished with their work, Eisenhower knew not to step right. close to those programs. And we can build the new rail of politics if we talk about wages, livable wages, free college tuition, and Medicare for all. They would never, ever be able to touch those programs again. So I think like how a lot of us look at it, how the Democratic Party has really just lost its way over time. It was always, let's try to see if we can get that suburban moderate Republican. Mm -hmm. And so we were always, or let's say the past, really kind of like for people that are younger, under Bill Clinton, it was a DLC, DLC leadership. And that was really pretty much a very centrist, almost right-leaning Democratic Party. And that's what mm -hmm. we became. And so what you see is that Democrats, like you're talking about healthcare, instead of proposing under Obama, hey, let's just go and say Medicare for all, a universal healthcare. What do we end up doing? We end up saying, okay, let's do basically Romney care. And we don't even really, we kind of say, oh, we don't really have to have the public option. So we're always, our, the goalposts always get moved for us. Instead of being bold, we're just like, well, at least if we can get a little something. As we see the other side, they're like, you know what? Let's do a tax cut that is unbelievably reckless, whatever. It, the popularity, there is no popularity, but we're going full steam ahead. And they still get what they want. So there, there is that lack of boldness. Exactly. I mean, and once again, they tell their story and it's it's a it's a lie, but they tell it and they're good about telling it. They're bold. They're bold about awful things. They're so bold. They're bold about bold about their evil. They want to lock up kids indefinitely. Right. They want to. They just took money. This talk about bald, you know, brass. They just <laughs> took money from cancer research. Just just did it and and put it into caging kids in this country. They took FEMA money and put put it into ICE. Right. <laughs> I mean, they're bold and they're bold and for the bad. And about right, that's what we did. But Democrats, many of them, far too many of them, uh, Nancy Pelosi still hasn't embraced Medicare for all. Even though if you go to it, this is the ninth district, this, we would should we're supposed to be these very conservative Democrats here. But I go to these ninth district meetings. And I'm, I almost never hear anybody speak out against Medicare for All. They're all on board with it. So, but if we're going to be called the Democrats, it needs to be a bottom-up movement where these local movements define. But, and to be fair to the Democratic Party, you know, I'm, I was, I'm talking a lot of crap about them, I know. But to be fair, the reason I ran this campaign is partly because I haven't done my job over the past few years. I sat back and criticized, and it's easy for me to criticize from the sidelines. But to be a Democrat, you better be in there in the trenches if you're going to do criticism. But let's be honest, man. That's that's a fair assessment. You know, mm -hmm. when you look at, you know, Donald Trump's election was probably the best thing that could have happened for our country. I know a lot mm -hmm. of people listening won't agree with that. Mm -hmm. But you look at groups like Pave It Blue, mm -hmm. Athens for Everyone, you know, Indivisible, uh, 159 Georgia Together. I mean, these groups were birthed out of folks that have become very apathetic uh, and complacent. And I'm going to be honest, you know, I've, I've, I've been out there, you know, fighting a lot of fights consistently and, and not having some of that support. But in the same respect, I also understand that all of us can do more. All of us can contribute more. And the thing that I, I think is so critical for us to understand, which is kind of where I want to shift to next, is 
when you look at state politics, right, one thing that I'm excited about this year is the substance of the of, of the uh, candidates, right? I mean, you got this guy, Charlie Bailey, out there talking not just about being tough on crime, but having a civil rights division, right? You have uh, Janice Laws that's out here talking about premiums on insurance and uh, making sure that folks that are on a budget or a fixed income are okay to be able to afford their insurance. I mean, there there are these conversations that I would say they're not just progressive, they're bold progressive, right? And that, to me, is the most inspiring thing. Granted, we, we love Sarah Miko. She was in the studio with us. We love Stacey Abrams. I'm, I'm excited that we have a, a, a great uh, group of women running for office, but I'm more excited about this boldness that I'm seeing. I mean, whether it is the the uh, young people uh, that are a part of the Black Lives Matter movement, or you know, women that are saying, "Hey, um, enough is enough. Sexual harassment is not okay." A lot of folks are trying to say, "Okay, well, these are social issues that are democratic issues. They're not democratic issues. If you have a son, or if you have a daughter, or if, or if you have a business, these are issues that affect all of us." Mm -hmm. And what I want you to talk about a little bit more is what is is it going to take for Democrats to get over that hill, right? Mm -hmm. Because we've seen great candidates. We, we, we had uh, we had Kathy Cox and Mark Taylor years ago, right? And they had to beat them each other up only to end up getting defeated. You saw Jason Carter, who ran a phenomenal race and comes from Georgia royalty, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we, we've had great candidates. What do you think is different about the candidates from the governor's race down to the Public Service Commission that Democrats have uh, to really focus on if we're going to win? Uh, one great thing about being a Democrat is that you don't have to be a rock star. Um, I mean, these are rock stars. Actually, I mean, Stacey Abrams, uh, Sarah Zamiko, these are two of the most qualified people. I, I, sometimes I, my wife and I will have met them several times, and we'll be driving home and, and we'll say, did they just really have a conversation with us? These people are so talented. I mean, I love your humility. And so, I, I mean, these people are amazing. However, what makes... Stacey Abrams and Sarah Riggs Amico awesome is not necessarily just their own personal attributes. It's the energy in the people because the people in Georgia are getting sick. You know, there's a reason she's right there neck and neck with Brian Kipp and supposedly Republican, you know, the South. It's because people look and they can see through Brian Kemp's smile. I mean, it's not hard to see through it, uh, that fake smile of his, but they can see through, they've heard this shtick so much. Um, the energy. By the way, thanks for the parody. I had to throw the parody. Ah, uh, hey, I, that was my pleasure. I'm a smart aleck around the house. If you haven't seen it, look up uh, Josh McCall parodies, Brian Kemp. You'll see it. Look it up on CNN because they did a phenomenal job of putting it together. Uh, usually my smart aleck remarks go unrewarded, <laughs> and I get groans out of them around the house. But this one time, oh, man. my smart aleck nature. But, but you know, it's the energy and the people is really, I go to these, um, these events uh, at these Democratic parties, at, I go knock on doors, and it's not me, right? I go up to, the, to people at the door and I say, how can I earn your vote? And it's the passion that the, pe the people are finally getting a sense and a vision that we are at a precipice in this nation. We're at a turning point. We're either going to go more hateful, more terrified, more enraged, or we're going to actually go in the, the, the path of reason, finding solutions that help everybody and not just the top. Because if, if the people don't wake up, I, it doesn't matter how phenomenal Stacey Abrams and Sarah Riggs Amico are, um, or if we even if we can find another Barack Obama, right? Which actually I think um, I, I have to actually say that I think uh, Stacey Abrams is just as talented, or maybe more than Barack Obama. But we hey. could we could find a national leader. 
even if we found a national leader like him again, it won't matter if the people don't wake up and start getting to work a little bit every day, a little bit once a week. I think people want to be on the right side of history. I mean, Mm -hmm. I've got a book being released in early 2019 on nationalism Mm -hmm. because I feel like, you know, being a patriot has been hijacked in this country. You know, uh, my father died, uh, you know, 10 years ago, almost to the day. And, you know, he died a month before he could cast a vote for John McCain or Barack Obama. Mm-hmm. And one of the last conversations I had with my father, which I shared with Sarah Amico, was that my father believed if you wanted to serve in the United States uh, as United States president, you should have served in the United States military because he comes from a time where if you're going to send some people to war, you should understand war. And I bought that up because, you know, I love what you're saying about the identifying with the people, mm-hmm. you know, and, and to me... Being a candidate is more than having a good stump speech or a platform. It's about being willing to listen, to understand, and not to respond. And when I ran for office in Forsyth County, uh, not only was I the first Democrat in over 25 years to run for the position, uh, I was also the first African-American to ever run for office in this county. And to be quite frank with you, I was probably one of the first politicians to ever knock on some of these folks' door because the... the, the, uh, the uh, uh, the what what is it not the primary the mid the uh okay so i just the lost midterms. Not, the, not the midterm mm-hmm. anyway we'll we'll mm-hmm. get back to it but basically people's uh primary that's what i was mm-hmm. thinking of their mm-hmm. primary um is their general election mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. most of the time we're seeing areas in north georgia where in the primary those are two republicans and whichever one wins they end up being the elected person so i you know i, I like the fact that we're having these conversations because we're doing a, a much better job of bringing these issues um, that people are dealing with on a regular basis to the forefront of where we are as a society. Mm-hmm. So we talk about the fact that there are all these labels now. You know, you're a conservative, you're, you're a liberal. It's all nonsensical. Everything's been blown up. I want to ask you about being a candidate. And to me, as the person at the table who hasn't been a candidate, it would seem to me one of the most exciting things would be to knock on that door who somebody, let's say, is a conservative Republican, and you've talked to them, and this conversation goes so well, and they're like, you've earned my vote. Walk us through what it's like when you basically convert people. Mm-hmm. And that does happen. I, you know, Our data in this district is not really wonderful because Democrats almost never have primaries up here, especially at this level. That's right. um, we had a primary this, this, this past year between me, myself and Dave Cooper, and so we have more data now on which people are strong Democrats. But that's a once, you know, a lot of people didn't even know we were running against one another because it's a huge district. And anyway, so going up to these doors, I found that about one out of every 12 will identify culturally as a conservative. And usually what that ends up being is like a denial. Like, yeah, I can't vote for you. Have a good day. And we don't, we don't argue with them because that's not, you don't want to go to people's doorstep and argue with them. But I have found people, and I didn't have to convert them. I walked up in, uh, in Clayton. There's a man that lives on Morrison Gill Drive. He uh, had a veteran's uh, license plate and a big truck, 82-year-old white male. And if you're stereotyping people, you know, you would probably have thought demographically this guy's probably a big Trump supporter. So I go up to his door, and we had had a great night, all maybes and yeses. And then finally I get to his door, I thought, this is going to be my no for the day. And he opens the door, and we talk for a bit, and he said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen in Washington. You know, that was the week McCain had died. He said, I think the guy who could actually reach across the aisle, the last one in a long time, just died. And um, he said, I'll I'll stop beating around the bush. He said, I'll I'll be frank with you. I've been a Republican for decades. 
and I cannot vote for them in good conscience ever wow. again. He wow. said, I'm voting for Stacey Abrams. And he said, now that I've got you at my doorstep, he said, I'm going to vote for you too. Wow. And, you know, that's the thing. You know, the Republicans have this model where if you have a George W. Bush, you know, you can talk the working class into thinking, oh, he's a guy that just wants to have a beer with you. When in fact, he was the guy who would, would have a beer and a liquor and a liquor and then some <laughs> cocaine, drive home and get away with it because he was rich and he didn't have to work until he was 40 years old, right? Mm -hmm. um, they want those figureheads. Democrats have got to get out there and, and have the pulse of the people. I'm not smart enough or good enough to convert people. People have just as much reason and morality that I have. And what I've got to do is approach them as an equal and say, this is, these are my values. I think that my values are right for this republic. Love your neighbor as yourself. You want to talk about patriotism. How do these Republicans believe, especially the Republicans in the, at the political class, how can you love your neighbor, I mean, love your country if you don't love your neighbor? How can you be patriotic and not support Colin Kaepernick That's just right. as much as you support the troops? That's right. Um, you know, the, and I mean, as a matter of fact, for those that don't know, Cap, you know, was sitting down and it was actually an Army vet, former special right. forces, that said, you know, when, when, we, uh, when, when one of our brothers falls, we take a knee. And he told Cap, he said, you know, maybe you should take a knee. And, and in that dialogue, because a, another part of my book on nationalism, I interviewed Dr. King's daughter, Bernice King, who's a good friend of mine, and she said that the one thing that she can't wrap her, her mind around in today's society is American hostility. And so, you know, when you look at what Kaepernick's situation, you know, these same folks that are talking about the First Amendment and the right to bear arms, you know, are, are the same folks that are saying that he's disrespecting the flag. And so I, I think you're absolutely right. And staying on that, uh, talk to us a little bit, you know, as, as we extend our borders beyond the state of Georgia. But nationally, we see it. You know, we, we saw it, um, you know, from a, from a racial standpoint. Um, I want to hear your perspective when it comes to a lot of these issues. Because one thing that um, I had a conversation with Van Jones a, a couple of months ago, and he had talked about how he went to eastern Kentucky and West Virginia and a lot of areas where, you know, they, they cast... Uh, negative stereotypes on, you know, conservative voters that voted for Trump. And he said, you know, when I went in and sat down with them, when I had conversations with them, when I had lunch with them, when I marched with the coal miners' wives that, that uh, were marching for their husbands that had black lung disease, I mean, this guy went in and said, look, we've got to see both sides. So talk to me right now about, one, uh, how do we as a society do more, uh, do a better job of engaging across racial lines because I think uh, from what I've seen in the conversations I've had, a lot of white males don't feel that the Democratic Party has benefited them, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's just a conversation I've had throughout the South with a lot of folks that maybe 10 years ago they were white males and they were Democrats, but a lot of the elected Republicans now, we all know in this room, are uh, were formerly Democrat, mm -hmm. you know, so number one, how do we speak to folks that feel like they're not a part of the conversation, and then number two, how do we address some of these national issues um, in a meaningful way, because it almost seems like whether we're talking about opioids or we're talking about, you know, immigration, everything has to be a partisan issue. And, mm -hmm. you know, let's be honest. I mean, everything does not have to be about being a Democrat or Republican. Sometimes we just want to make sure that your son or daughter gets the treatment they want. Mm -hmm. You know, we want to make sure that an immigrant's child gets the same compassion and empathy that your neighbor's child gets. Mm -hmm. So talk to us a little bit about what are some of the things we can do to engage people that feel disenfranchised, number one, and then how can we begin to address some of these national crises 
um, in a sense that we could really begin to solve some problems rather than building walls. Mm -hmm. I, I think that one great place to look is people who are on the front lines. I have to say that my work has been made easier by groups like Black Lives Matter. They were saying that at a time when people, when cops over in, um, over in Missouri were pointing guns at them and saying they're going to shoot them down like animals. I mean, people say, sometimes people say, wow, Josh, you're, you know, this is a bold vision you've got. Um, aren't you afraid of people threatening you or whatever for being a Democrat in the Ninth District? Go look at what Black Lives Matter protesters have been through. That's nothing. I mean, I, I realize, number one, as a white male, that I'm safer driving down, driving down the street and walking down the street. And number two, as a candidate, I know that in the Ninth District, I, I have some privilege that I'm carrying right around with me every, everywhere I go. But how to talk about it with people who are already mad? First of all, I mean, I, th I think the only way you can diffuse anger, and I've seen it work even on social media. It actually even works on social media trying to return good for evil. I think if you look at some of the greatest philosophers in history, Socrates, Jesus, uh, Buddha, uh, Muhammad, you know, they all taught that you should return good for evil. And um, if we, we, I think that's the way to make social change. Um, I heard a, a, this uh, white guy from South Carolina, he's now a social, he's now a civil rights activist. He's in his, he's very old, but he, had a conversation with a, a civil rights activist who was visiting South Carolina. And he, it was a mostly white audience, and the civil rights activist was the son, uh, his dad had died in the war, World War II. And this white guy said, well, you know, these, um, he, he, he basically repeated some racist um, propaganda he had heard from his local politicians. Back then it was the Democrats doing this. And he said, you know, those, his accusation was that the black people in these units hadn't fought hard enough, and so a lot of them died or whatever. So that was one of the smears against black people back then. And so this black uh, civil rights activist, I mean, it could have, would have been very easy and understandable if he had taken, um, taken an insult in that and just, you know, called him out and said, you know, you're just a hateful white dude, you know, you're, you're deplorable. Right? Yeah. It's um, easy to call people a name. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But what he did was he said, you know, my dad um, over in World War II, he came home after fighting in that war. And um, he suffered. He I mean, Actually, excuse me. He died in that war. And talking about his experience, having had his dad die in the war, that white guy's dad had also fought in World War II. Mm -hmm. And so he found that connection. And common ground. this this white man who had grown up with so much, it was this powerful moment. It was like a Saul Damascus moment. I mean, if you grow up with this racism, and I grew up in Franklin County, and I didn't realize at that point at, at, when I was growing up how these racist ideas had, had just been in the soup that I was growing up in. But if you attack people, the, the first thing they're going to do is defend themselves. Right. But if you talk to people in kindness and, and, and tell them, I respect you and I love you as a human being, this is where I think we need to build a better future, how we can build a better future. You can say, find common ground. You saying that, though, so here's the question I have mm -hmm. as it relates to rural white America, mm -hmm. right? So when you say white privilege, right, there are a lot of poor whites that would push back and say, hey, I'm, I'm not a recipient of, of white privilege. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have had to learn 
that even in making an argument, you've got to pick and choose your battles and your fights. How do you address that? Because there are a lot of folks that would say, yeah, I, I get this argument and, you know, but but I'm, I'm just as poor over here. Or, you know, how do you address those audiences that will hear white privilege and say, hold up, I'm not a recipient. I wasn't alive during slavery. I mean, all these conversations, because I think there's an opportunity in those conversations. Mm -hmm. But again, when we become hostile, it prevents us from making progress. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think that really the, the, the bigger story here is that everybody's oppression is everybody's oppression. That's right. You know, if, if the Democrats could find a better way, and I, I'm not smart enough to do this on my own, but if the Democrats could find a better way to say, look, you want economic justice. That's what a lot of people voted for Donald Trump for was because the sense of economic justice. Jeff Bezos is breaking in billions of dollars by not having to work, by getting Chinese workers to work in awful conditions and then paying warehouse workers who are tracked with a computer. Um, that's oppression. That's right. And those people know what oppression is like. People who had their, just like the people in where I grew up in Tacoa, Millican Humphrey plant, where my mom worked 38 and a half years, it's gone now. And a lot of people up there are hooked on meth, just like the crack epidemic spread through the urban areas and the African-American community. The opioid epic is spreading through the white community now. Yep. And what we could do is to talk to them, look, this is injustice. We need to support one another and to try to use language, rhetorical language that invites people into the conversation rather than shutting them off. And do um, Dr. King understood that. And, 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 and when he was assassinated in 68, 50 years ago, his approval rating was 32%. Yep. Mm -hmm. And he died. His last campaign was the Poor People's Campaign, which was a campaign for economic justice. Because mm -hmm. Dr. King had realized that it wasn't that racial justice was not important. It's just that he understood that we needed white allies in rural Georgia and, and in the rural South just as much as we needed, you know, uh, Jewish allies up in New York. Or, you know, we, it, it couldn't be a movement by black people and for black people. Mm -hmm. And Dr. King understood that economic justice was the, was the great unifier. And, you know, unfortunately, we, we never knew what came out of that campaign because he was assassinated. And if you look at what Bobby Kennedy did in 68, 61 days after Dr. King was assassinated, was Bobby Kennedy went to, you know, Appalachia and he saw the poverty. He came from a life of privilege. But like you said, you know, if you're not willing to, uh, to, to embed yourself into another person's struggle... Bobby went and he saw the poverty and he saw the faces of the hungry children and he began to say, hey, we've got to start thinking about how we treat the least of these in this country. So I appreciate that answer. Um, we're on our stretch uh, going into our final 15, 20 minute stretch. So I want to make the most of our time. Eric, you brought up some things about not just how Josh is, is running, but, you know, we talked a little bit about his politics and some other areas. Kind of, I don't know how to how to frame it in this sense, but when we spoke earlier, uh, you brought up some things about uh, about his his campaign speech during the convention. Can you remind us a little bit about some of the things he said during that time that we had spoke about before we went live on air? Well, one of the things we spoke about is essentially you're saying, hey, the the people that are trying to detain all these children, which by the way, the latest news is there's 1,500 additional kids. They don't know where the hell they are. Yeah. I mean, think about that. That United States of America has all these children in what are prisons. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And they're separated. Um, but you're saying, hey, those, the ones that did the action, they're the ones who should be caged up, and they should go to the court of law, and justice should be administered because of these.
these disgusting policies. That's the, you know, I watched my opponent on Fox News just the other day. He's a frequent on Fox News, much more frequent, by the way, than in the Ninth District. Um, but he was, um, he was on there talking about the bias in the justice system. Wow. Against, of course, Republicans. Um, you know, he apparently hasn't gone into the Hall County Courthouse in a long time. Wow. Uh, because, you know, the people who were calling for law and order, like Donald Trump, have brought nothing but lawlessness and chaos and cruelty. What they've done is they have substituted cruelty for justice, mm -hmm. cruelty, savagery for security. And right at the border, they're practicing it. And there are some people out there who support him caging kids. But I, I know a lot of Republicans who are starting to peel away and saying, I can't support this anymore in good conscience. They have, Their eyes are open. They, they, they're not denying what's going on in front of their eyes. But this is a crime. To kidnap a child is a crime. I'm, you know, they call it family separation. And Orwell would, would have a field day with that sure. term. If I go and pick up a kid from somebody in the grocery store, even if they were just speeding, even if they just committed a crime, if I take their kid and ship them across the country and then deport them or put them in jail somewhere, that's not family separation. That is kidnapping. Uh, and the, probably some of the most horrifying things we heard, we heard the kids crying. We heard some mm -hmm. tapes come out of the kids crying. We heard an, an officer making fun of these kids crying. He said, all we need now is an orchestra. He's laughing at these kids crying. So you know what? I don't feel bad when, I, when people ask me if I want to abolish ICE. Hell yeah, I want to abolish ICE. These people, there was another ICE border agent just got caught killing four women and a fifth escaped. Um, this, this is a threat to all of us. So for, for those yeah. that hear that, though, and, and I, I don't mean to mm -hmm. cut you off, sure. but okay, you abolish ICE and then mm -hmm. win. Because that's because one thing, and, and I know you have an answer for it, mm -hmm. so that's mm -hmm. why I wanted to bring it up. Of but a lot of times as Democrats, we say emotional things, mm -hmm. but then the, the on the other side is, okay, well, what's your solution? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. tell us right now, if you were in Congress and your vote was the vote to abolish ICE, mm -hmm. what do we do? We do abolish it because, number one, it would save money. Instead of paying for these cages, $750 a night, we could give these people who are refugees temporary workers' visas, and they wouldn't be able to collect their check unless they showed up at the uh, border, at the, at the patrol office. That's right. right. There are lots of... Canada does this. They have migrant workers, and they, they pay for housing for them, and they don't give them their check until they get back to Mexico. There are rational, reasonable, humane, and dignified ways we can control immigration. So what do we replace it with? So ICE is different from the Border Patrol. Got gotcha. you. I actually believe in a strong border. I, mean, I don't think that we need to militarize it. I don't think we need to, I don't think Mexico's gonna invade us anytime soon. <laughs> um, but the, the place where we can check on immigration is not in, at the border. The place where we can check immigration is the reason they're crossing the border. Right. Go to the chicken plants. Mm -hmm. Isn't it strange that they're so brave uh, with these migrant children and their refugee moms at the border, but then at Fieldale, huh? I wonder why I don't see all the raids at Fieldale or Tyson Food um, or some of these chicken processing plants or on construction sites. You don't see it as much because, I mean, that's actually, if, if they fix the problem, they wouldn't have anything to run on is one of the issues. That's right. uh, but ICE is actually not there to prevent immigration. ICE is an extra big government. Right, we hear conservatives talk, Let's they want to government. shrink government all That's the time. Right. The ICE is very new, it was, it was created after 9-11. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have plenty of police officers 
We have plenty of police officers. If somebody commits a crime, they can still turn that person, if they're an immigrant, if they're a violent immigrant, over to uh, the immigration agency. They don't have to have ICE patrolling these areas, arresting people delivering pizzas. Dropping their uh, kids off at school. Dropping, the, right, dropping their kids off at school. This is... This is literally Gestapo-level stuff. These are families right out in the everyday life being torn apart. ICE's main function, really, before this administration was sex crimes. Mm -hmm. You know, children, you know, women, you know, being brought here. Are you talking about human trafficking? Human Mm -hmm. trafficking. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. as you see, they have kind of taken ICE and turned it in a completely different direction. So with immigration, you've brought us to something that that I want to hear your point of view of how you construct an immigration system. Because I think a lot of times you'll hear Democrats, they're guilty of, you know, well, we're for immigrants, Mm. but then there's no policy. So what Mm -hmm. I was looking at is, so you have places like Canada and Australia, and they have a points-based system. And they say, you know what? We want to bring in people, but we want people who can add society. But they have a separate program that says, hey, there are people that come from places in the world that are horrible, just like, most of the people from coming from South America, they're coming here because they're war-torn, drug, you know, war-ravaged places. So there's a separate program that says we allow a large amount of people to come in as refugee, refugees, rather. Mm-hmm. So how would you look at immigration? What would your immigration you know, policy be? One of the ways that we can reduce refugee uh, crises is by not creating refugees. I know that sounds very simple, and I know this is hindsight, but looking forward, every bomb we drop, Every bomb we drop in Afghanistan is going to create refugees. Um, you know, we've spent more money in Afghanistan now than when we spent on World War II, and it's the longest war in American history right now. No end in sight. Um, and some of the refugees going into Europe are coming from Afghanistan and Pakistan. And, so, and um, I haven't followed up on this, but the Taliban is either at equal strength as when we invaded or at greater strength than when we invaded. Um, our, so the... Um, Central American immigrants, the refugees who are coming in, those are countries where we had what these experiments in fascism, where we supported local fascist governments against local democratic movements. Um, We tore down their structure. And we need to realize as Americans that when we support foreign invasions and when we destabilize other countries, guess what's going to happen to your country? It's called the boomerang effect. Mm -hmm. So if you are going to support these interventions overseas. I, I just said it, inter- intervention, they're invasions. If you support invasions uh, overseas, you are going to need to plan on refugees. Right. Um, so that's one way we can stop having as many refugees, stop dropping so many bombs. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw the bombs that we just provided to Saudi Arabia being dropped on a school bus yeah, in Yemen. Right. Guess what? That's the, the biggest human uh, crisis uh, in recent history, they have a cholera outbreak. So that's number one, stop invading so many countries. If we're going to want people to respect our borders, we might want to start respecting other people's borders. So that's lo- number lo- one. Global military spending, hold that thought, is somewhere around $1.6 or $1.8 trillion. Mm-hmm. And 37%, almost 40% of world military spending is from the United States alone. Yep. And when you look at the closest country to us, which I believe is China, for every dollar they spend, we're spending Mm $2.77. So when you look at these numbers, man, it it just really makes you understand uh, the the, the reasons why uh, our our country and the world is in such a catastrophic state. I mean, we're literally through war 
displacing uh, millions of people. Mm -hmm. and, and the reality is uh, 1.3 billion people, I just read this, 1.3 billion people in the world are living at or below poverty. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. that is that is 10 percent of the world's population mm -hmm. is living at or below poverty. And that's not taking into account the hundreds of millions of other folks that are living check to check or that are struggling, whether it's how we define poverty or how we define um, a person's well-being from a humanity standpoint. So finish your point. I, yeah, just, so I, I just wanted right. to make sure I threw that in there. I think we have to realize, number one, that humanity has never had a time when there weren't immigrants. Yeah. No single kingdom republic in the history of the world didn't have to deal with immigrants and social change. Even in the Middle Ages, um, there has never been a time when people aren't moving. That's actually part of essentially who we are as humans is that we move around. Um, so we have to, first of all, understand that, that there's that. And then we also have to understand that immigration is good for our country. We have to fight back against this dangerous narrative yeah. that immigrants are, of course, as Donald Trump opened his uh, presidential campaign, Mexican immigrants are rapists. And murderers. They're murderers and drug dealers. That is in, that's actually fascism 101. Yeah, it's uh, picking moment. one group of people and, um, you know, the walking amygdala that he is knows exactly that point to hit on other people because that's the way he is. Uh, so that's, those are two things we're going to start out with in this narrative. Now, uh, I believe in a five-year path to citizenship. I believe that in five years, you can tell if somebody has a gonna, has, is going to be um, have a propensity toward violence yeah. if they have yeah. uh, drug connections, dangerous drug connections, especially. Um, and in that time, I, I don't believe I'm not against deportation as long as people get due process and they are. We know that they're actually guilty and they've had a chance to have, you know, appear before court, like our Constitution uh, promises. Um, and even for the people who are here so-called illegally. Some of them are here illegally because their paperwork got burned in their house or they missed a letter on a form. Give them a cheaper path to citizenship yeah. so that they can come out of the shadows. All these people with a huge function in our society, they feed Gainesville. Gainesville uh, would base. collapse yeah. if the undocumented immigrants left. If they didn't show up to work one day. Look at what happened to Alabama when they passed tough laws against immigrants. Their school population dropped by 40%. Mm -hmm. Their uh, their agricultural area dropped by almost a billion dollars. I right. mean, all this mm -hmm. happened by having, you know, these trigger-type policies. Mm -hmm. And to your point, you can have deportation or strong immigration laws and due process at the same time. We right. don't have to treat people like they're not citizens not human beings. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so I believe that for the people who are here undocumented right now, I, I think we do need to recognize that it's a law that you have to be documented, right? Mm -hmm. However, why not do the same thing I, that happens to me when I get a, a speeding ticket, right? If you're here without the right paperwork, you're not hurting me. You're not dangerous to anybody. The, the punishment needs to fit the crime. So let them pay a modest, reasonable fine if they are here without documentation, and then put them on a path to citizenship. Because as long as they don't have a path to citizenship, that, that amygdala is going to be sitting out there waiting for the next Donald Trump to hit it. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got to reform the immigration system if the Democrats are going to have a sustainable movement. So like a cynic would go, the Republican Party said a long time ago, hey, guess what? Let's bring in all these people illegally so they can work in the farms, work everywhere. So they brought that all in. So for corporate profits, I can help increase corporate profits. And then they turn around and now go, look at this giant problem. There are mm -hmm. all these illegals. And it kind of, it's akin to government um, sabotaging the ACA. It seems to be what they do is they say, hey, 
let's we're, we're quietly behind the scenes they're going to break something and then they're going to say to the public guess what government doesn't work see that look at what happens and they run in this endless cycle and drain the swamp yeah <laughs> oh my gosh they're not draining the swamp <laughs> not at all no. <laughs> well, yeah what, what, what i want to do um I want to give you a chance to close out to the people uh, with whether folks uh, live in your district or not. Uh, What I will say to people, and Eric, you can chime in as well, is that uh, this is a guy that is worth voting for on the sunniest day, on the rainiest day, and if there was snow and you could safely get to the polls, get to the polls for Josh McCall. That's number one. Number two, if you can't vote for the guy, write him a check. Uh, Josh, you, you, you embody the kind of candidate that I know will make us proud. As a matter of fact, uh, Shirley Franklin had a saying when she ran for office that said, if you make me mayor, I'll make you proud. And I want to tell all of you all, if you make Josh McCall a congressman, he'll make you proud. Um, Josh, I want to just bring up one last thing from my point. Um, great world leader and uh, someone who um, really during the apartheid movement um, had many different facets, which was Nelson Mandela. And he has a quote that said, overcoming poverty is not a task of charity. It is an act of justice. Like slavery and apartheid, poverty is not natural. It is man-made and it can be overcome and eradicated by the actions of human beings. Sometimes it falls on a generation to be great. You can be that generation. Let your generation blossom. when you close out, I want you to speak to the generation. I want you to speak to the first-time 18-year-old that'll go to the polls this year. I want you to speak to the man or woman that may have served time that's getting their voting rights restored. I want you to talk to the single mother on welfare. I want you to speak to the you know kid that doesn't think that they have a voice. I want you to talk and let people know the importance of uh, us giving people economic security and upward mobility because I think there's going to be a lot of people um, that are in our society. We have almost 700,000 registered inactive voters in the state of Georgia. And if there were a message that you can tell them, what would that message be? I want to tell you the story that I learned when I was a kid about this poor preacher, teacher, that came out of Nazareth. And there was a saying back then, nothing good can come out of Nazareth uh, because it was just this podunk town full of working people carpenters, fishermen, all that. He comes out of there and he, he tells this amazing story. He says, if you have faith, even as small as a grain of a mustard seed, you can move mountains. Now, I don't think that he was telling people, if you just believe that you can move this mountain, it'll just move over for you. But what I do understand from that in my own experience is this. Some days I feel like we can't win. A lot of me anyway. Yeah. A lot of me That's feels fair. like, look, Kavanaugh, McConnell today said that they have the votes. He's going to get voted on. He's going to be on the bench. Donald Trump won against Hillary Clinton. And some some days it's easy to to hear that voice inside of you that says you can't do it. But if we all found every day that little bit of faith, that little mustard seed of belief that we could change things. You know, they used to tell Martin Luther King, you're going to start in Alabama? (laughs) You really think you want to do this in Alabama? And look at what he changed. That's right. They used to tell women who couldn't even vote, you really think you're going to attain the right to vote when you can't even vote in the first place? Who's worried about you? And they got the right to vote without even having the right to vote. So, you know, 
we can find hope in the past when people were in more desperate times even than when we are right now. Uh, and we can believe that if we work together, I tell people when I'm knocking on their door, you know, I don't really want to vote that maybe they're comfortable enough, nothing's bad enough for them. And I always say, if you can't vote, if you don't feel like voting for yourself, vote for your neighbor. Because one of your neighbors is somebody in jail right now for an ounce of pot. That's right. One of your neighbors right now can't get to the doctor. So vote for your neighbor if you can't vote for yourself. Um, you know, the, 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 the issue of poverty in this country I've had a lot of conversations with people, and because our media is owned by the rich, uh, they get to tell the story about poverty. And of course, when you're rich, you often, not everybody, but a lot of the people who write our stories for us in the news, they say, you know, wealth and poverty, it's really uh, a character judgment. Wealth and poverty is like the, the gods of this world, and they tell you whether you're a good person or not. I'll tell you, I've been a teacher. I've taught very rich people, and I've taught very poor people. And I can tell you that wealth and poverty are awful judges of character. Look at Donald Trump. <laughs> I mean, lo just look at some of the people who are rich in this country. And then look at some of the people who have been poor. I want to remind everybody, by the way, that Jesus was a poor man, right? He had no place to lay his head. Um, so this, it is not a character judgment. It is something that we can help. And a kid who's born into poverty in this country has a different destiny right now than a kid who's born in wealth. If you're born into wealth, smoke some pot, just like Kavanaugh, maybe you'd go get drunk at a party and you can have this bright life in front of you. Because remember, mistakes are for rich kids. Right. Everybody else gets one chance. You're a teenager and your brain's developing, you to try to decide to try drugs and you're at a black party instead of a white party or a poor person's house instead of a rich person's neighborhood, you go to jail. You don't have a counselor, you don't get a plea deal. You don't get a lawyer that has time to work, look, look at your case. We have got to work on, we are a nation of equals. That's what we're, we're supposedly founded on. But we are not even close to a nation of equality. And a large part of it is because of poverty. And we've got to make sure that the kids, no matter what they're born into, remember people don't choose to be born. No American or, or Iraqi or Afghani ever is born and they say, you know, I'm gonna become, I'm gonna be born in Afghanistan. I'm gonna be born in Martin, Georgia to two working class parents. I'm gonna be born a black man or whatever. Nobody chooses to be born or to be born in the circumstances they're born into. We've gotta stop, we gotta stop this, this endless cycle that, that birth is destiny in America. We gotta build ladders and pathways out of poverty and out of suffering, out of jail. And we gotta build bridges between one another. It's going to cost money, but I can promise you it's not will will not cost as much as what we're spending right now on prisons. Biggest prison population in the whole world, bigger than China. Uh, our military spending, invading other countries. This idea that you don't have to think about the society you neglect is very expensive. That's right. And we've got to stop. It's costing us not only a lot of money, it's costing us the futures of millions and millions of fellow Americans. There's a quote that says it's better to build strong children to repair broken men, mm -hmm, and you right. pretty much summed it up. Eric, take us home. Let them know how they can keep up with us, how they can follow right. us. Just knock so, it out. All right, so first, before I do our deal, Josh, tell everybody where they can find you and support you. All right, sure. McCallforall.com is my website. Um, you can support That's two C's, y'all. That's right, two C's. C. Uh, and you can also go to my Facebook page or my Twitter account. I try to keep it really real on Twitter. He does. I've written, I do. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, so uh, please go visit me there, follow me, retweet, uh, spread the message. Uh, sometimes on Twitter especially, it's a little snarky, but uh, most of the time I try to remind people to love your neighbor as yourself. 
Um, and I, I need money. I don't need Doug Collins' money, but I need enough money. And I don't have enough money right now, so I need your help. Um, a callforall.com, you can find out how to volunteer as well. I'm actually knocking on doors and coming tonight, uh, canvassing from 6 to 8. We're meeting at Kroger at 6 o'clock on Freedom Parkway uh, in my side of Forsyth County. So there are lots of ways you can come out and act out and uh, work for a better future. All right, well, we want to thank Josh McCall for showing up today and having a tremendous interview. You can catch us at, first of all, let's remind everybody we have a website. Oh, yeah, we got a website. Yeah, we don't really even talk about the website because we're always like, oh, we're at Blue Topsy. So you can go to bluetopsy.com. B-L-U-E-T-O-P-S-Y.com. Yes, we've been taught we're supposed to spell it out, right? That's what I'm talking right. about, All right. man. So, and by the way, shout out to Daniel, best engineer in the world. That's right. Shout out to Track Attic Music right here in Cumming, Georgia, in Forsyth right. County. This dude, he's an awesome engineer. So, you know, look him up. So when you need music recorded and stuff, he's our guy. So... Blue Topsy, at Blue Topsy, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And we want to hear feedback from you guys. And we're having a great lineup of guests coming up over the next several weeks. So just think of any type of question that you might want to ask any politician coming on. You don't even need to know who it is. Just if there are issues and concerns and stuff you might have, send them over to us, and we're going to be doing a lot of Q&A sessions with people. Feedback and criticism, too. We're big boys, right? That's right. Yeah, we can take criticism, so if you have it, bring it. If you want to get in touch with Josh or for any of our guests like Sarah Miko, if you heard something and you want to relay a message, we keep great relationships with the folks that we bring on our show because they're great people. So we look forward to the next episode of Blue Topsy. See you guys soon. All right, bye.